Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. While you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been to a play? Whether it's a a child's play or a a Broadway show. My family and I attended a play uh, this summer. I'm sure I have been to some along the way. It's the first one that I remember going to, an actual full production drama called The Lost Colony, and it's in Manteo, North Carolina. Perhaps you've been there. It's an outdoor drama. You're you're looking over uh, the bay there uh, and the Outer Banks, and the drama is about uh, that initial colony that was established and then lost. And so... Uh, we're seated in the amphitheater, and I saw bits and pieces of the play because our children were also with us, and so there were some up and down the stairs between Tara and I with the kiddos. But every so often during the drama, the lights would kind of come down on the stage, and the narrator would come out from the side. So the drama would kind of calm down, and the lights would come down, and then out would come this narrator who's dressed different. He's not a part of the play, but he steps out to give commentary on where we are in the play. So he was helping the audience. He was helping us understand what you're seeing over here. Here's what's happening. Here's why this is happening. And so he was getting us up to speed. And he was helping us to get ready for what was about to happen. So he was explaining what we had just seen and was giving us the needed info for what was about to happen. Well, perhaps you've been to a play where that has happened before. You've watched a movie where there's been a voiceover narrator or you've experienced something like that. Well, that's what I want to do this morning. I'm not going to turn the lights down and step over there. But I do want to offer some narration about where we are in the Gospel of Mark because we're at a transition point. And I'll explain more as we go on. But if you've got your Bibles open and you're able to stand, I invite you to stand. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 3, we will pick up in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, and from Judah, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that, they all, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning, for a chance to gather as your people, for a chance to gather with our brothers and sisters, for a chance to fellowship, for a chance to sing. Lord, most importantly, we praise you for a chance to gather around your Word and to receive. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open this Word to us now, cause it to live in our hearts and our minds, Cause us to love you more, and to follow you more, and to see you in your glory. Lord, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
So I have to apologize to Fran. I changed the title and the main idea of my sermon while she was out of town and did not tell her. So, what's in your bulletin is incorrect. What's on your sermon notes sheet is correct. So, uh, look on your sermon note sheet for the main idea this morning, which is this, that the crowds continue to follow Jesus, but only for the sake of healing and exorcism. They have come They have not come to experience the kingdom of God. They have come to have Jesus help them. That's his main idea of this short little text of where we are this morning. And Mark is using this text, and I hope to show you how, but he's using this text as a transition point in his story. And so I want to show us three things. I want us to see three things this morning. The first one, I want us to gain a broad picture of where we are in Mark's story. We've been together in Mark since August. We'll be in Mark for a while. (laughs) But I want us to help see, I want to help us see where we are in this story. The second thing I want us to do is grasp the point that Mark has been making. We've looked at a lot of stories inside of Mark's story. Jesus has been doing various things along the way. I want us to back up and say, what's the point of all of these stories together? And then the third thing I want want to do is to prepare us for what's to come. To prepare us for what's to come. And so as I said, our text is a transition text, and it's called a summary text text. Mark is bringing to a close kind of the first chapter of his gospel story. Things are about to change. And so today's sermon is more of a summary sermon. But you see on your notes there, the first thing I want to make note of is Jesus, the authoritative miracle worker. Last week we talked about uh, Jesus healing on the Sabbath And Jesus was in the synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand. And he knew the Pharisees were looking for some way to pin him down and and, uh, convict him or accuse him of breaking the law. So it's the only time in the gospel where Jesus initiates a healing, and he says to the man, come here and I will heal you. And then if you look back in verse 6, it says the Pharisees were so upset that they went and conspired with the sinners that they said stay away from, in order to kill Jesus. And so it's important to remember that that's what's going on. That's what's swirling around when we read verse 7. Because they were seeking to kill Jesus, he withdrew to the sea. So he knew what was going on. He knew that they wanted to kill him. He knew that they wanted to silence him and damp out his ministry. And so he said, the time's not yet right. The time has not come for me to die. It's coming but it's not yet here, and so he withdraws to the sea. And we notice almost right away that this massive crowd is with Jesus. Now, he was most likely in Capernaum when he healed the man with a withered hand, which sits right there on the shore of Galilee, but he's probably moved off and gone down the shore sometimes, some ways, and this massive crowd has come to Jesus. And Mark kind of divides this crowd into two groups. The first group is from Israel, from Galilee and Judah and Jerusalem. But then we read these other places, Idumea, 
uh, Tyre and Sidon. These are places that are far off. These are places that are not nearby. These are places where people have had to travel some distance, maybe even some days, to get to Jesus. And so while Mark doesn't record numerically how large this crowd is, we can understand that because of all the places Mark has listed, this is a massive crowd of people. And so Jesus is right in the middle of this crowd. And so in one sense, there's safety from the Pharisees. They are not going to do something out in the open right in front of all these people. But in another sense, we notice that Jesus is almost being crushed. Jesus tells tells the disciples, um, bring the boat. I may need to make a quick exit. Bring the boat. They're pressing on me. I may need to get away so that they don't crush me. But let's, let's take a moment to consider why the crowd is there. Why the crowd is there. Look at the middle of verse 8. It says, When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. That's an interesting word. When you read the Bible personally, it's good to make note of particular words. Why is that word right there? Now, if you will recall, and we'll come back to this, but if you will recall in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Jesus came into the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then again, when he's been healing all day, he gets up early the next morning and retreats to pray, and the disciples come looking for him, and he says, let's move on so that I may preach, for that's why I came out. And then we meet this crowd, and what is the crowd obsessed with? They're not coming to hear him preach. They're coming to see him do things. They've heard that he's doing things, and they like what he's doing. And so they have come so that they might benefit. They've come for his doing and not his teaching. The crowd is massive, as I said. It's unruly. They're literally falling over each other to get to Jesus. They're clawing over each other, pressing, jostling, pushing, shoving, not in a mean, vindictive way, but these are desperate people who have illness, who have disease, who have need, and they think, if I just touch him, if I can just get close enough to touch him, I'll be healed. Think about if you're a parent and your child needs healing and you've heard this man can do that you're probably going to act in some ways that you wouldn't normally act in civilized society to get your child to Jesus. And so it's a very tense scene. It's very tense. People are being unruly. Jesus is pressed almost into the water, and he says, bring the boat. I may need to use it. And so along with that, we're told that the demons are still there. That the demons are still recognizing him. The demons are still crying out. But we will come back to the demons in just a moment. Because I want to make a specific point about them. But I want to pause for a moment and give us a recap of where we've been and the single thread that ties all of these things together that Mark is saying, don't miss what has happened. 
We're about to go into chapter 2 of the larger Mark story. Don't look in your Bible. We're we're almost in chapter 4, all right? But we're going to move into the second scene of Mark's story. And he's saying with this, don't forget where we've come from. Don't forget what's been said. Look at the crowds. The crowds are missing it. Don't be like the crowds. Because if you recall, when we started Mark, I said, the only people who know who Jesus is in the story are us, the readers, Mark, and the demons. Nobody else knows Jesus, other than he's a miracle worker. And so Mark is saying, don't miss the story. And so look in your notes there. We go back to chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Jesus is in the synagogue. He is teaching as one with authority. And then this demon-possessed man comes in and he exercises that authority. He exercises that authority. And so they say, we've never heard teaching like this. We've never seen teaching demonstrated with authority. Well, then we move on to Capernaum where Jesus heals... And this is not that far away, because recall, the synagogue is in Capernaum, and so he stepped out of the synagogue over to Peter's mother's house, or Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law is, and he commands a fever to leave. And so the people are still amazed at what's been happening. (coughs) And so after all of this demonstration of Jesus' authority... In chapter 1, verses 35 through 38, he explains what's been going on. He tells his disciples, don't get caught up in even good ministry. Don't get caught up thinking, I've only come to heal the sick on the earth. Don't get caught up in the fact that I can perform miracles. Don't get caught up in the fact that the crowds are beating on us to come back, come back, come back. Don't get lost in that. Jesus says, I've come to preach. I've come to proclaim and reveal the kingdom of God. Well, we see that immediately they leave and they travel elsewhere. And while they're traveling, in verses 40 to 45 of chapter 1, a leper comes to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you can, you can make me clean. You remember that? He doesn't say heal me. He says, make me clean. You can deal with this leprosy, but you can also deal with my sin can deal with my sin. And Mark puts this story in here, brothers and sisters, so that we see, so that we see Jesus' primary mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God, which is not healing from physical sickness. It is freedom from the bondage of sin, which is why in that leper's mouth, he said, Jesus, not only can you deal with this leprosy, but you can deal with this. And so Jesus, in fact, does. He says, I will. Be clean. Well, from there we move on to chapter 2, where Jesus is teaching in a house and there's a crowd pressing in on him again. You, you, you recall that. And there's a paralyzed man that his friends bring and they dig through the roof and lower him down. And there he is in front of Jesus. And we're ready. We're all ready for Jesus to say, get up and walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, why did you say that? Why didn't you say get up and walk? I did not dig a hole through the roof so that you could tell him his sins are forgiven. I dug a hole through the roof so that he could walk out the door. 
And the Pharisees said, well, who is this guy? Because only God can forgive sins. Who, who is this man who is claiming to forgive sins? And Jesus puts that question to us. Well, which one's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? And we say, well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can't see that. I can tell immediately if you can make that man walk or not. And Jesus says, no, that's backwards. Because we're trusting in what we see. We're trusting in the things he's doing over what he's saying. And so Jesus says, so that you know that when I say your sins are forgiven, that I mean it, so that you know that I can do the harder thing, get up and walk. I'll do the easier thing. And the man walks out. So in following that, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Jesus teaches about that. He does something, but then he proclaims. You're missing the kingdom. You're missing it because you're so hung up on what you can see. You're so hung up on what you think Jesus can do for you in the here and now. You're missing the kingdom of God. And so he teaches, and the people are left saying, we've never seen anything like this. Well, he moves on from there, and he's walking by the sea, and if you recall, up on a platform sits Levi, the tax collector. That offensive person who Jews hate, who would never have come to Jesus on his own because it would have cost him everything in his life, his income, his pride. And Jesus says, come and follow me, and says Levi gets up and follows him. And we're all following Jesus like, how did that happen? How could Jesus look at that man and see anybody worth a disciple in him? We're also thinking, Levi knows he's not going to be able to come back to this. Levi knows he's lost all his money. Levi does know this, right? And we're left pondering what just happened. And so Jesus, again, teaches us. We see him laying, reclining at Levi's dinner table, having dinner. We see him talking with sinners. And we see the Pharisees, too scared to come to Jesus because they're so stunned at what he's said and done, they ask one of his disciples, why is he eating with sinners? And Jesus says, A doctor doesn't avoid the sick. A good doctor goes to the sick. You guys are so hung up with what I'm doing. You guys are so hung up with trying to be holy all by yourselves. You guys are so hung up making sure people are following all your rules that you've missed what the kingdom is about. Well, from Levi's house, we see Jesus walking through the the grain fields on the Sabbath. We talked about this last week. His disciples are plucking heads of grain because they're hungry, and the Pharisees once again come to him. You're breaking the law. Why are you doing that? And Jesus takes the opportunity to say, you've missed the kingdom. You're so hung up with nitpicking everybody to death. You're so hung up with holding yourself to such strict rules that you have totally missed the kingdom of God. 
And he says, and just to make it clear, there's a guy over here whose hand doesn't work. Be fixed. And he fixes the guy's hand to show them that what he is saying about them, what he's saying about the kingdom is in fact true. Because if a man can fix a withered hand with a word, what he's saying ought to be revered. And so Jesus teaches. So now we're with Jesus in the crowds. And the crowds come to Jesus because they understand Him to have power. They've heard that He's doing things. They do not come to Him because they understand Him or His mission. They understand Him to have power to fix their brokenness, but they don't understand Him or His mission. They're not listening. They're not comprehending. They're only coming to Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. And so Mark is using three characters in his story to make a point. You see it there on your note. Mark uses the crowds to illustrate an important point about coming to Jesus, which is the wrong reasons. The crowds have come in a self-serving way. The crowds have come for Jesus to do what they want Jesus to do. The crowds only see Him as this magical genie-type person who can help them along their way. And Jesus says, or Mark, what Mark is saying, is that's the wrong reasons for coming to Jesus. We look at the Pharisees. Mark is using the Pharisees up until this point to illustrate an important point about responding to Jesus. And that's a wrong response. The crowds come for wrong reasons. The Pharisees have a wrong response, which is that they see Jesus as a threat to their way of doing things. I'm okay with Jesus as long as He doesn't get in my way. I'm okay with Jesus as long as He doesn't tell me I'm wrong. I'm okay with Jesus as long as He doesn't mess with the way I do things because at that point, I will not not accept Him. The point at which Jesus starts getting in my business is the point at which I say, okay, I've had enough. And not just that, okay, I've had enough, move on, teacher. They went out and held counsel on how to destroy him. Third group that Mark is using is the healed. The ones who have come to Jesus and are healed. He's using the healed and the disciples to illustrate an important point about responding to Jesus, and that's the right response. How do we rightly respond to this man who teaches with such authority and who demonstrates the the truth of his authoritative teaching with powerful acts and miracles? It's discipleship. It's giving my life entirely to him saying, I see who you are, I hear what you're saying, and I cannot help but submit entirely to you. And so what we've seen up until this point, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is not only a miracle worker, but He is an authoritative miracle worker. Let's move on to our second point, which is that Jesus silences the healed and the demons. He silences the healed and the demons. I haven't talked about this much. I haven't talked about Jesus telling people, hey, don't say anything. But I want to address that now because... It fits in with the story and it makes an important point. In chapter 1, 
verses 43 through 45, the leper has been healed. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Go and show yourself to the priest. Honor the law. Fulfill the law. Go to Jerusalem so that they might know God has come. Do you remember that? Because if a leper was healed, it was a clear sign that God had healed him. And when Jesus commissioned this guy, go to the temple in Jerusalem, what he's telling the priests in Jerusalem is that God has come and he's in Galilee. And so Jesus tells him to be quiet. Well, we know that that, that the man doesn't keep it to himself. He goes out and immediately begins to spread the fame of what Jesus is doing, along with everybody else. <clears throat> because when we get to chapter 3, verse 7, there is a massive crowd from everywhere. People are talking. There's, no even, there's not even social media at this point. People are just talking. And the people have come. And so the healed, those who have been healed by Jesus, have disobeyed Jesus' command to be silent. And people are hearing. People are hearing. Well, there's also other commands to be silent that are directed to the demons. In chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus says, Come out of him and be silent. We see it again in chapter 1, verse 34. In chapter 3, verse 12, what we just read, He strictly ordered them not to make him known. But we need to make some some notes here, some points here, about these silence commands. We need to notice first that the demons obey. The demons obey. They don't question Jesus. They don't run out and get in somebody else and start telling them. They obey. A second thing we need to note is they have already spoken when Jesus has shut them up. Look at chapter 3, our text today, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Nobody else, nobody else in Mark's story understands that about Jesus. Nobody else can see, nobody else can comprehend that he is the Christ. But keep in mind, brothers and sisters, where, where are we at when these demons make these confessions? They are in a crowd full of people. The first one we see is in a synagogue, and the demon cries out, What do you have to do with us? We know who you are, Son of God. If I were in that moment, and I heard a demon who I knew to be a powerful spiritual being say to somebody else, you are God. I'm going to think, maybe he's onto something. If I hear it again, if I hear this other demon who responds in a moment to the commands of this man and calls him the Son of God, I might think to myself, I might should take note of that. But no one takes notice. Nobody notices that the demons are giving to Jesus His actual identity. Nobody notices that the demons are actually revealing who Jesus is. No one cares 
because they can't see. You see, Jesus' identity remains hidden to the characters in the story until the time is right. The disciples don't see yet. The disciples won't see for a while, not until Peter says, well, who do you, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. I see that now. But right now they can't see that. Even though they've got demons convulsing and worshiping their creator, not in a willful way, but they are being compelled because of his authority to cast themselves down and to cry out, yes, God, you are God, and nobody is taking notice. And no one takes notice because it's not yet time. It's not time. And so whereas the healed are going and telling people, Jesus does some great things, nobody's going and saying, the Son of God has come. It's not time. And Mark's point is that we do not come to know Jesus as the Messiah until God reveals it to us. We can be preoccupied with what Jesus does. We can like things about Jesus. But until God opens our eyes to it, brothers and sisters, we will never say, what you are saying is right, and I will follow you with my entire life. See, in John 6.44, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit first draws him. And this is preparation for what's about to come because in chapter 4, Jesus is going to give us very hard teaching on the parable of the sower. And His disciples are going to say, well, Jesus, what does that mean? Why are you talking to us about seeds? And He's going to say, to you, the secrets of the kingdom have been given, but not to everybody. And so Mark is preparing us, He's helping us to see That we do not come to know Jesus as the Messiah until God reveals it to us. You see, we are naturally taken with the miracles, but like the crowds, we are not naturally interested in Jesus' teaching or His mission. What would make you want to give up your life here and go preach in the fields of a Mexican uh, farm establishment to broken people? That's not something you would naturally arrive at. Our natural response is to say, I've got a good life here. I don't need to worry about everybody else. I'm just going to take care of me. I'm going to take care of myself, my family. I'm good. If Jesus can come here and help me, I'm all about that. But we are not naturally interested in His mission. And so a third thing I want us to see is preparation for what's to come. Preparation for what's to come. The remainder of chapter 3 is going to further highlight right and wrong responses to Jesus. It's going to deal with the unpardonable sin. It's going to give us our first glimpse at what true family is. See, Jesus doesn't settle for our definition of family. Jesus says, let me tell you what genuine family is. And as I said a moment ago, Mark is also preparing us for some difficult teaching that Jesus is about to reveal about how men and women enter the kingdom of God. 
But my attempt this morning, my goal this morning, has with Mark's help to give us a big picture of this unfolding gospel story. You see, when the good news opens, we meet Jesus, who is the divine Son of God, who's come to wage war against Satan and sin on behalf of God's people. Perhaps you remember that. And as the story opened, we saw Jesus definitively defeat Satan in the wilderness. And so we might have expected... We might have expected that all who encountered Jesus would joyfully turn to Him. This is God. He's the one. There is no other one besides Him. It's only right that we turn to Him, and so we might have expected that. And yet, not only is this not the case, we we see people responding to Jesus in surprising ways. We see people responding to Jesus in unexpected ways. The crowd simply want Jesus to help them along the way to heal their sickness, to fix their messes, and they seem to have no interest in following Him. The Pharisees, who have all the biblical knowledge, respond to Him with anger, hatred, and fear, and they end up rejecting Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, don't miss the point. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible if you don't know Jesus. So whereas we might have once expected all people to positively respond to Jesus, Mark is helping us see that, brothers and sisters, that's just not the case. And in chapter 4, Jesus will shed light on why that's not the case. But when we come to the reflection and application, we need to talk and ask some things. We need to ask ourselves, why do people come to Jesus? Well, people come to Him for numerous reasons. Some come because, like the crowds, they are fascinated with what He can do. Sometimes our gospel explanations emphasize what Jesus does rather over who Jesus is. They're fascinated with what He can do and they hope that He can somehow help them live a better life. Some come to gawk, some come to ridicule, some come to poke fun or to accuse. How could you believe something so silly? Some come hoping that their religious obedience will earn His favor. Look, Jesus, look at how, look how good I've been. And Jesus said, many of you in that day will come saying, Lord, I prophesied in Your name, we healed in Your name, we did all of this in Your name. And Jesus will say to some of them, depart for I never knew you. We see some come to Jesus to find life. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing that Jesus is the Christ, you might have life. Let me invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. You see, coming to Jesus for salvation, brothers and sisters, includes not only believing that He has the power to heal and to save, it also includes recognizing that He has infinite authority. It also includes submitting to His teaching and following Him on His mission with your whole life. Salvation, brothers and sisters, means becoming His disciple. So maybe you are here this morning and you say, well, I am just one of the crowds. I've come because of what I think He can do for me. Then you need to repent and confess and believe. Perhaps you realize that you are more like a Pharisee, that Jesus has gotten into your business and you realize that He was going to change some things about you and you've said, nope. 
If that's you, then you need to repent. You need to come to Him for salvation. You need to come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Perhaps you're wondering if you've been a faithful follower. Jesus tells us in His Word that He knows His sheep and they know Him. Jesus tells us in Galatians 6, the fruits of the gospel in our lives work themselves out in ways that we can know. Wherever you find yourself this morning, let me make you a couple offers. Number one, the altar is going to be open in a moment. Come and pray. I'll be down front to pray with you. Find somebody that you trust. Find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust that you can talk with. And when our service dismisses, I'll be down front and I would love to talk with you and pray with you. Lord, thank you for a morning each week we set aside to hear from your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your word has been preached with clarity and that you will use it in our lives to glorify yourself and to call us to follow you. Lord, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. in Christ alone.